Hey, Jason. Hey, Juan. How are you? Good. Excited to present the second of three of a special series that we did with uh, uh, our foundation's uh, podcast hosted by our friend uh, Joshua. And for those who listened to the first part, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, the second part is the continuation of a quite long conversation, which is why we broke it up. However, you will you should know in the second part, we had a small technical difficulty at one point. One of our tracks went out momentarily. We had a backup, but the backup doesn't sound as good. So you will notice that, but hopefully it won't cause too much of a problem for your listening uh, experience. Jason? Yeah, so thanks again for tuning in. If you haven't checked out our Patreon, if you've been listening from the start, we're uh, coming up on 15 episodes here. So, yeah. you know, if you feel like uh, if you've been enjoying the uh, conversation so far and you've been around for the ride, uh, if you could muster it, uh, 50 cents per episode, a dollar per episode, whatever you can manage, uh, that would be uh, a huge help. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, reviews, word of mouth and word of, word of mouth is one of the best things you can be doing right now so we can continue to grow so we can identify new interesting guests to bring onto the show and to maybe even do some events in the future so all those yeah. things uh that would be fun help and and we'll make for a more enjoyable exciting different experience yeah yeah maybe when uh the coronavirus is controlled we can we can uh do some kind of thing where we travel somewhere jason and, and do a show live or something like that well, I mean, I thought we could do a meetup in Italy next week. There you go. That sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. Well, now we're definitely not going to get any money on Patreon. But if you still want, if you want us to go and uh, to Italy next week, please visit our Patreon and uh, support the podcast, If you, especially if you enjoy what you're listening to. Yeah, and that'll require more than 50 cents per episode. <laughs> yeah. Maybe someone dislikes us a lot, Jason. They'll give us lots of money. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, th- thanks, everyone. And I uh, hope you enjoy part two of our crossover with our foundations. All right. The views that I express on this podcast are mine. And the same for our co-host, Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. It, there are some questions that I have with how this is going to play out. Obviously, I would like it to play out in a similar way where we have the Enlightenment period that everybody looks at as being this big positive thing that happened with society and progress started then into modern society. But there are some big issues that are still looming over all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And and Joshua, uh, if I can just plant a flag, what you said about strategic uh, action, and then I'll go... uh, let you uh, go on sure this form of strategic action that we're witnessing i would argue my point from earlier this is kind of an extreme form of strategic action that is uniquely tied to the financial interests of massive corporations 
And my question is, I wonder if the pairing of big data and strategic action, which is so dystopian yeah. in from, from this, this one perspective, if maybe it could be redirected yeah. towards something like expanding democracy rather than shrinking it, increasing the um, experience of individual freedom of autonomy. Um, and I think that's something we should explore. And also, uh, Joshua, what you said about the this relationship between the state and the markets is super fascinating. And as we start working through, you know, how much that we're seeing the government contracting work out to the markets, out to uh, private companies, and the kinds of dependencies that exist there, I'd be really interested to get your take on that uh, and to see uh, what what we make of all that. So I, you know, I'd like to translate some of this, I think, into some of the, what you were saying, Jason, about strategic action and some of what Josh, what you were pointing out in terms of parallels into uh, into maybe a, a set of terms that will help us get to the present and have a maybe a, a certain sense of the past as it relates to it. And what I would say is, I think. Regardless of whether we, you know, Jason agree about where strategic and communicative action begin or end, I think we talked about this the other day on the phone. You know, even if even if we don't agree about that, I think it's interesting to look at it from the concept of the media through which people interact and the systems of interaction that we have, and that, for instance, came to exist with the Enlightenment. And as of as of sort of laid out, um, it's not that meet up. Someone like Habermas and someone who is thinking from media theoretical perspective is not presenting. It's not presenting you with a framework in which they're talking about human nature. That is for them, or let's say from this framework, it's almost beside the point. We go back to, for instance, to Hobbes. You know this key political thinker in our tradition. So, well, obviously everybody kind of knows our, you know, the sort of like Sparks Notes version of of Hobbes. But Hobbes basically thought in the state of nature. Life is violent. Basically, we need a territorial ruler, the Leviathan, who can, who can, who people will make a pact to give up, give up their autonomy to an extent, and their power and their capacity to overpower others. Uh, and they give power to that to that territorial ruler. Only the territorial ruler has the legitimate the 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 right of legitimate violence. The sovereign. That word, that famous sort of word that refers to kings and then with the sort of bourgeois revolution and the shift towards popular sovereignty will refer to the people. Sovereignty means exactly that. Who holds power, right? So our legal system is really about neutralizing action. Now, Habermas isn't saying necessarily that language is based on a sort of idealism about people communicating and coming like, you know, making agreements and like, and so forth. He's saying that language structurally, as a media, the way it acts in the world, the way it exists in the world, it forces people to have to make claims about reality, about number one, sort of general reality, social reality, and their interior sort of like personal reality. Number one. So it's a me so to language, whether we, you know, whatever we draw the line in terms of communication or strategic action, it regulates our action. It's something, it's a technology that we developed as human beings. And it has a structure and it in, and we interact with it every day. And when I say the sky is blue, the, the the balloon is yellow, you know, Jason has dark hair, 
these, uh, the propositional structure of that language, it's such that I'm making a specific set of claims that can be checked, that can be argued about, that some a, a second party can sort of, in a sense, um, refute or agree with. That is that communicative realm. Money and the law, if you think about the law is, and we go back to Hobbes, it's about neutralizing power. It's about saying, where does your power begin and my power you know, where does your power begin and um, where can you act and to what extent? And and because of the way, uh, and, and we haven't gone in depth into talking about this transition out of the Renaissance, out of feudalism into sort of modern day, what we call, let's say, capitalism, modern capitalism. But in our very legal institutional system, in a sense, uh, crystallizes what was uh, that sort of set of social relations, one in which the newly ascendant uh, bourgeois middle classes um, ma- you know, basically clamored for their, uh, their, what they saw as their rights, their rights to property, their rights to liberty, to speech, to so forth. And this became institutionalized in a legal system that, that by its design is supposed to not only separate powers in terms of who legislates, who executes and who uh, reviews, but also sets aside a sphere of action which is neutralized by the by money, uh, where it's in say regulated by money, self-regulating, doesn't need, you know, in terms of sort of classic economics, doesn't need the government to step in in terms of to insure contracts and so forth. So if we think about it in the, in those terms, in the way that these media regulate our you know our actions. And whether we, you know, whether we agree about communicative or strategic action, um, in our tradition, liberal, the liberal element of our tradition is about safeguarding that private realm, safeguarding that realm that's where the government's not supposed to interfere and where other people are not supposed to interfere to an extent into our, let's say, our, our autonomy, but giving us, a, opening up a realm for autonomy through, that is self-regulating. And how does it self-regulate? through the media of money, which becomes institutionalized in law with the rise of the modern nation state. So prior, you know, I think, Joshua, you were talking about how, you know, what to what extent is money controlled by the state in the past and so forth. You know, if you think about it, um, we could talk about something like the Roman Empire and its money and so forth and its institutions and how much it regulated money and, and, and whatever. But it had a very different set of social relations. It had a very different mode of production. It was not based on, on, on private property production in the same way that we have after, the, after feudalism. So I think we have to you know, be exact to an extent when we sort of start making parallels. There is a difference. The nation state in the way it does control money, you're right, in a way that doesn't happen before let's say even during the Renaissance where a city-state might have controlled money and in Italy, Florence would have had a currency, Venice would have had a currency, Rome would have had a currency and so forth. But but with the rise of the nation-state, money becomes institutionalized or the private realm or the prime of, of the realm of private autonomy and action does become institutionalized by law, by positive law, a law that is supposed to be bound and, and in a way connected to uh, popular sovereignty so that so that we do have, ideally, in this, in this system, we do have this balance between private, the liberal element, and the republican element, the po- political will formation, access to the political system, access to, to making that law and transferring that public opinion to 
to legislative branch and then where it's formed and sort of where the legislative branch has its own methods where it's supposed to, yes, people act, of course, representatives act strategically in it, but the methods are supposed to, in a way, draw out out of all those strategic actions in the legislative branch, a sort of consensus, uh, a law that's legitimate, which, by the way, because of the separation, separations of power, if it's not in line with constitutional develop, you know, constitutional foundations, something like the judicial branch can say, uh-uh, that's, that's, I don't care that you passed that law and that it seems legitimate. That's not, you know, that's not okay. So if we think of it that way, I think what you're trying to get at or what you're getting at, Joshua, is how this supposed system that's supposed to balance public interests and private interests through these media that we've come up with in our tradition, law, money, uh, in an institutional sense, to neutralize both power and public and private initiative or private interest, how these have been, in a sense, how these were supposed to be somewhat beholden to the public sphere. They were somewhat, through the legislative branch, there was supposed to be a, produce, a production of laws that were supposed to, in a way, program the administrative state so it's beholden, it's reactive to people's, to people's everyday lives. So that when there are, the, let's say the administrative life, uh, state starts uh, going into everyday in their everyday life and in a sense causing negative having negative effects this is supposed to transfer through things like the media which is supposed to pick up these signals right the media is supposed to say oh you know this law is really screwing up these people over here and this law look what it did over here and, and so forth it's supposed to in a way transfer that public opinion through the media to the legislative branch and to change those laws to make the administrative system which is supposed to again in a sense bound that realm of of private initiative to the public interest, it's supposed to make it reactive to the very public interest. So when we have, but here's the problem, and I think this is what, you know, if we talk about it in this abstract sense and, and without talking about concretes, it's what happens when th the media, the mass media, the press gets sucked up into, into uh, the market system. Um, what happens when... Um, Citizens are maybe haggling over material rights, not necessarily over the public interest. How do you square up these things? That's a very difficult question. And now if we fast forward now, you have an even more complex uh, ecology of media than we used to have. You know, Habermas' argument is, is twofold. It's technological. It's think with, with the rise of mass media, with the radio, with the television, and so forth, and the ability of the market to sort of channel these for for in the interests of strategic interest of getting people to buy things as you said jason like a strategic interest of of um, um, uh, commercial strategic interest and in a way co-opting what is what's supposed to be a sphere of discussion of transferring public opinion to the legislative branch it gets even more complex with this with this ecology very complex ecology of media whereas you mentioned joshua not only is a lot of mainstream media corporately owned and therefore in a sense, already there's a there's a there's a there's a huge conflict of interest between this media that's supposed to serve a public interest, transfer public opinion to the legislative branch where it can be formalized into law, and the fact that they have private interests, they want to make money, and they have other interests. Sometimes these people that own the media also own industries, right? Also have commercial interests in other parts of the economy, and now you have an even more diffuse public sphere when you have tons of platforms tons of you know the through the internet tons of venues very diffuse venues of people 
uh, all over the world, in, in a sense globalized, talking to each other, talking past each other in, 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 in platforms like Facebook and Twitter and so forth that are not necessarily oriented towards, um, in a, whether we agree with J uh, Howard Moss or not, are not oriented towards a sort of critical discussion. Right. We could even maybe be reflective a little bit here and say, well, what about things like YouTube and, and podcasts, which open up a whole new realm for discussion that that is much that is not necessarily guided by commercial interests. So that that's where I think then we get Jason, if we translate, you know, our disagreements into a sort of like or if we bypass our disagreements and translate into the, the issues we're facing is when we get and I want to talk concretely about things like algorithms and government and governmentality through algorithms what happens when something like an algorithm which is designed and oriented to get as many eyeballs to parse as data in a way to get people to buy things at the end of the day right what is google it's a fantastic yes it's a search engine it's amazing and it's learning all the time and so forth but it really google wants me to somehow find my way to a product click on it and they want to make a buck of it. Well, and they also want to take all the data of everything I click on in the computer, every website I go to, every email I send, every place that I check in, every every Facebook like, and somehow package it into 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 packets of attention, credit, and populations that they can somehow monetize. So, so there's a huge con uh, conflict between, and we've seen this with fa with Facebook in particular between the interests of the company and the interests of public opinion and what the media is supposed to do in terms of being the carrier of public opinion, the carrier of that communicative reason, supposedly, where we're agreeing on things, not just being strategic, but saying, hey, we think this is best for society and transferring that into laws to program and make the administrative state reactive to what people actually want and need. So, you know, I think, I hope that gets us to the present a little bit. What do you, what do you think about that? Or what, what comments do you both have about this this framing of this, the problem as it might, and I think we can, and I, I want to, I know Jason has some things, I have some things to sort of like thicken and, and make it more concrete. I know it's very abstract. Yeah, there's um, one thing that I wanted to ask and get you to elaborate more on, either you or Jason, but you talked about uh, capitalism and the influence of that, and that's the obvious link between this time of the Renaissance Enlightenment period and modern times. Capitalism is what comes in between, and that's our precursor to all these things we're talking about today. And so I am interested in your views on uh, the influence of capitalism on society in relation to these things we're discussing. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of things and I'll let Jason respond. You know, if we talk about it historically, um, what, you know, what was feudalism, right? So the historian Marc Bloch, uh, a French historian, talks, you know, he basically characterizes feudalism as having two sets of social relations. The first was the system of loyalties that linked lords and vassals, the feudal nobility, right? And the second was the relations between, of exploitation, really, I mean, between the feudal lord and the serf. The serfs worked the land, the serfs did, you know, whatever they needed to do in the land, and the feudal lord basically took a little bit of a pay from that. Uh, but in return, there was a sort of sort of, uh, arrangement in which the, the lord uh, guaranteed a certain territorial safety to these serfs. Uh, it was supposed to ensure their, their freedom from, let's say, other lords, um, and so forth. And it was supposed to be the lawmaking authority to an extent. It was the sovereign. And then you could add then the church as sort of the spiritual authority that guarded over the system of belief that held society together. We're talking about European feudalism specifically. And 
And it consisted basically, uh, the theology consisted of a sort of a network of correspondence between the physical world and the spiritual world, which added, which in that political alliance between feudal classes and the, and the Roman church in the, in the post-Roman Empire period, uh, served as a sort of mutually reinforcing buttress to the power, to both earthly power and the church's power, um, to the feudal power and, the, and earthly power. And it provided an ideological justification for the sovereign power of the Lord, right? The Lord, in a sense was um had this power which historically it had been a power gained through war and conquest but had it through through being in a sense in good standing with the church and and having a sort of uh theological justification or at least or at least to an extent now uh, you know for Habermas, he paints he you know his book on the structural transformation of the public theory, he begins by talking about the the transition out of of the of this feudal system to the renaissance and he really f focuses on the way that uh in particular if we think about the rise of of bankers let's say in in the italian city states particularly in florence uh you know the families like the medici you know they were situated geographically between the east and western europe between the middle east and western europe they were situated geographically in a very after the sort of fall of the antique world and a sort of um they were situated in a way that they were they were able to be middlemen in a sense in the trading that was starting to take place between uh for for goods from the east that were being um very much sort of demanded in the in these big trade fairs in france and in brussels and in in, in belgium and so forth therefore they had to also become really good at logistics and they had to become really good at creating new technologies like letters of credit and things of that nature. Um, this is sort of Habermas's art, you know, discussion about uh, historically. Uh, they, therefore, they were at the margins of the feudal system, which was, in terms of production, it was peasant production. Uh, in terms of agriculture, it was peasant production. And in terms of processed or produ produced goods and services, it was in the, based on the guild system. It was the guild system was not a for-profit system. It was a system of producing goods uh, for the nobility that was about controlling local production in the towns uh, through a set of uh, secret formulas and processes and through a very hierarchical uh, apprenticeship system, right? With the rise of capital that the Medici have, they're able to start influencing politics. They're able to start, you know, financing the church, financing the aristocracy, uh, their central um, to the rise of the modern nation state. So for for Habermas, the public sphere forms during the late Renaissance, when sort of the modern mercantilist state, with its kind of newfound need for centralized administration and taxation, begins regulating the commercial sphere, which is that sphere of private initiative, you know, where the Medici have been acting, for instance. And the new urban commercial middle classes, which are at the margins of the traditional feudal economy, began begin to demand accountability for government action. Since any of government administrative regulation regulates affairs that are their affairs as private citizens, as private people. So, according to Habermas, there emerges concurrently, you know, this sphere of civil society made up of formal and informal institutions in which public opinion is supposed to be formed and transferred to the state. Uh, in other words, capital, and this is this is also part of Harvard Moss's argument, 
at one point, at a certain point, there was almost a concurrent uh, relation between the rise of the modern nation state and capital because at some point capital demands not only certain certain conditions, legal conditions, but also certain uh, certain requirements for it to to grow beyond a certain extent. You know, if you create stock companies, if you create uh, if you pull together capital and you try and you want to make sure to minimize private risk, you need legal instruments that are that exist to do that. You also need uh, uh, you also need the state in another way to back up your 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 um, your big scale uh, operations or or attempts commercial interests both locally and overseas. Um, so you need a certain regulation of trade and so forth. So for Habermas, these things are inextricable. The rise of the modern nation state and the markets are not, you know, somehow things that you can disconnect from each other. They are inextricable. Uh, they're institutionalized in law, and they, and the mercantile estate, what we call the mercantile estate, in a sense, is is um, is a state that's very oriented, basically, to to spurring um, uh, the growth of capital for, you know, of, of trade and of the production of finished goods at home for their sale abroad and the importation of finished goods. It's also tied to colonialism, you know, intrinsically tied to colonialism, uh, which we could spend a lot of time going into, but I, but I want to go into right now. One quick thing I'll add to that, Juan. This may or may not be, I mean, we, we could certainly have different historical perspectives on this. I I read about half of Steven Pinker's new book, uh, Enlightenment Now, and he kind of pinpoints some of the core Enlightenment values, values that are derivative of the Enlightenment, reason, science, and humanism. And perhaps we could view the rise of big tech today as kind of the natural progression uh, from the Enlightenment, especially if we think to how kind of corporate scientists or researchers applied principles of reason and science uh, in the firm throughout the industrial revolutions to increase efficiencies, reduce costs, all kind of to accomplish things that were tied to the bottom line of, um, you know, manufacturing companies like Ford, things like that. So, uh, you know, and now we see not just the rise of big tech, but almost like a romanticization of a big tech as well. You know, Silicon Valley is kind of this beacon of perpetual progress, perpetual growth, mm -hmm. this kind of like transhumanism that we see coming out of there. There's a cultural element to it that is uniquely, that is distinctly tied to the Enlightenment, tied to our Enlightenment values. Yeah. It's something that Nietzsche would just absolutely despise, <laughs> thinking back to our episode on Nietzsche. So, um, so I, I wonder if we could interpret this history as something that is uniquely, um, you know, that is inevitable, starting from a place of the Enlightenment. Which element is in, and in, in which, what do you, uh, Jason, just to clarify, uh, which element is in that would be inevitable? Could we, uh, I mean, what question? The use of technology is kind of a, a means to, to increase efficiencies, reduce costs, and uh, maximize the bottom line yeah. for, for capitalism. And I think one way we could talk, and I think this links up maybe to to an extent to to Habermas's framing, framing, right? But what was really revolutionary about the rise of these sort of like merchants, like the Medici, was that they really um, they they escaped that feudal that feudal set of social relations. They escaped the the the, the relationship between feudal lord and peasant on the vertical on the vertical axis and in the horizontal axis. Um, they were able to outpace the guilds, right? 
um, the guilds were working in a, fra in a framework of production, which was about using old formulas to produce things, secret old formulas that were supposed to be passed on in an artisanal way, right? It was about artisanal labor. And it was about producing things at a smaller scale, at a local, controlling, very much controlling local markets. It wasn't about competition at all. So with the shift to an institutionalized modern nation state in which you open up the realm where you legally, literally, I mean, think about our system of what we have legally. It's a system of rights, private rights and public rights, civil rights and private rights. And those private rights, um, which are so fundamental in a way link up to, our, to, our, the, to that tension in the Enlightenment thought between, between autonomy of the individual, yes, but also the notion that through method, through a sort of like... A, uh, a, a method that is uh, objective, that we can find modes of governance and of administration of things like markets that optimize these, optimize the realm of private realm. So, I mean, in a sense, you could almost think how because there's this tension between what the political community is supposed to agree about and the fact that in the market, people are supposed to act based on private interest, on selfishness, basically. I mean, you could almost say the the, the big um, tension there is between how in the market realm, all these selfish or self-interested acts are supposed to balance out, but it's supposed to balance out because we have institutionalized a system in which the law is supposed to sort of supposed to vouch for the public interest. But to what extent, to what extent uh, does science get captured, or maybe that's not a fair term, but in a way, is science almost, um, in a way, being siphoned uh, away, not necessarily away from just uh, uh, finding out the truth, but siphoned towards what we would call the interest of, of industry and capital, right? Um, not just, not in a, in a one-dimensional sense, not just, it's not just that science is always like, say, oh, how can we make more money for capitalists? That's not, that's not, that would be a conspiracy theory, but it's that, the orientation towards, uh, and well, I think I want I want to talk this about about this in a little bit in, in the context of this what we call the smart city and the and algorithmic governmentality. The idea that we can optimize both the private realm and the markets, um, and every level of administration because we have a foolproof uh, objective method, scientific, is is no doubt I think one that uh, ties into the way art of art technology has developed and its orientation and what it aims to do and is at odds very much with that ethos of let's say just to name one example that the feudal the feudal social set of system relations which is not about things like efficiency where you know that that would not have been a way in which people thought about um what was good for everybody right so the tension between let's say something like maximizing efficiency and the public interest is definitely something that's that uh, captures attention that's intrinsic to our to an enlightenment tradition if you think about the notion that you can simply transfer a scientific method let's say to governance or to the administration of the market if if that makes sense you know if there's if you can if i'm making clear what the tension would be there yeah yeah and one aspect of that that i'm getting as you're talking about these different institutions and systems and these shifts is that we have this ideal and in a lot of ways, many of these factors in an ideal perspective are very good for us, very good for society, for the public sphere, and they work very well. However, 
if we look historically and in modern times, there is a contradiction between how these things ideally play out and act and govern and run and how they realistically do. We see the impact of capitalism on markets and on governments and on society as a whole, on discourse. And we see a shift from discourse and consumer behavior that was much more rational, I would say, and uh, public interests that are uh, ideally represented within their government, within the state. But there's a shift from this ideal to the modern focus on consumerism, on entertainment, on content that is convenient and easy to consume. And in many ways, this is good from a capitalist perspective, because that means people are buying more stuff. And that is a good thing. That's good for the economy. But from a public interest standpoint, from a more macro view, that's probably not very good from some other perspectives. And so there is this difference between the ideal and the reality, similar to the internet, where the internet began as a decentralized platform for everyone to share ideas, to share projects, to communicate and build relationships and keep relationships. And this is a wonderful thing. That is a very good ideal. It promotes open discourse. And it definitely promotes a lot of the things that we're talking here today, things that we are saying are very good for society and positive aspects. But the reality is that the internet has evolved or devolved, um, evolved technologically and devolved ideologically, probably, into a platform for corporate actors to monitor, analyze, steer, distract, and take advantage of individuals. And we see a lot of that control in the hands of these corporate actors, um, Companies like the big tech companies that control information, they control the platforms, and largely they help to steer the way that we see content and oftentimes the way that we think about content. They have these algorithms that help them to know how we will likely react to a certain headline or to a certain ad or to seeing a certain thing that one of our friends posted, and they know which things they can show us to get a specific reaction. And obviously, the incentives in a system of capitalism where we're focused on profits, the incentive for a corporation is to push more consumerism, more entertainment, more consumption, because they get more profits. And we do see this playing out. We see that true discourse is possible like never before, but it is rarely pursued. And I would argue that this is largely due to our modern ideology with a focus on entertainment, convenience, status, um, the outrage culture, that these are not things that really correlate well with our ideals that we're talking about with public discourse, even though... People are having discourse online, they're talking together, they're passing articles around, they're commenting on current events, but it's not really in this more ideal sense that we would like it to be. It seems like a lot of how this is playing out realistically is something that is a little more questionable, and a lot of this is highly impacted by, like you had mentioned, the strategic action and strategic communication by 
players like corporations and the influence that they have through their specific markets and their specific platforms. So it's something that I see this ideal, and you, you talk about maybe new ways of doing governance, new ways of having an economic system that's better and using science and technology and data to help us in these things. And um, I, I guess I'll probably get into this more later on in the episode, but yeah. there there is this ideal, and it sounds really good, and there's a lot of potential for that to be a very good thing. And a lot of these things we're discussing with technology and these different shifts that are happening could be really good. But unfortunately, um, in reality and historically, there are many other aspects that tag along. If you look at the Reformation, the idea was that people had different religious beliefs. They had different interpretations on what the Bible said. They thought the church was corrupt and wrong. And so they wanted to reform the church, change the church. And that changed into splitting from the church. And that changed into wanting to be able to interpret individualistically what the Bible says and how you live out your religion. Well, this, um, from one perspective, we'll look at the positive side of this, we'll say that that was a good shift, that we got away from corruption of the church and all this power that the church held over society, and people were able to look at things for themselves and make their own decisions and live and act in a much more free way, make their make their own minds up about what the Bible says and what they believed. Um, some people even decided they didn't believe at all, and this was possible now. However, when we look at the big conclusion, uh, so to say, of the Reformation, it's the Thirty Years' War. It's not something that really was focused on religion, although there are religious aspects. You know, England broke away, and there um, was a definitely a nod to religious differences. But if you look at what actually happened, the reality of it, you had Christians fighting other Christians, and you had Catholics fighting for Protestant nations against other Catholics. And you have all these different strange dynamics that played out because this whole shift and all these things that were happening were basically co-opted by the institutional powers that be, and that is, in a sense, how we got the beginnings of the modern nation-state. You had the church lose a lot of its power, and you had the nobility kind of step up and fill those gaps, and they... It wasn't necessarily that the exact same nobles just all of a sudden became kings and had borders and had nation states, but we see out of the roots of the nobility and their role in society, we see that that's where the modern nation state and how it was formed and what it looked like later on, that's where the roots were. And one of the biggest catalysts here was the Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. And so even though ideally this was just an issue of interpretation of religion, it ended up being something where you had a massive power shift and the dominant player got ousted, so to say, and you had the nobility really come up and form this new entity, the nation state. And so I'm always trying to look at these things we're talking about in modern times through this lens of we have this ideal that technology is such a good thing, and in many ways it is. Like capitalism, it is a very good thing for society. We progressed a lot through capitalism. There were many very positive aspects of this. But at the same time, I'm sure we can all think of many different negative aspects of capitalism. And so 
there is this ideal versus the reality, and a lot of times they clash, but a lot of times they exist at the same time. And so it's something that is um, something to be aware of that I'm always trying to be mindful of and look with more of a, a critical eye, a more contrarian eye to these things that are happening because there's typically baggage that comes along with every shift in society. Yeah. And and let me, you know, to to respond, I think, a little bit to that, Joshua, let me be clear. You know, I think what I, what I was trying to point out, and I think this more links up with which what you, what's your argument is that um, as Jason was asking, uh, sort of my response to Jason was, I think it is intrinsic to uh, enlightenment thought and its in its contradictions and tensions that uh, technology and the scientific method become linked up to an ideology of of uh, of being of efficiency and so forth. And I'm not necessarily taking a role i'm not taking sides on whether i think this is necessarily a good thing or a bad i mean i personally think it's the ideology has its problems and it's probably more problematic than good efficiency for the sake of efficiency so in some ways i think i'd be you know me and you joshua might agree there more than you might realize but i think uh, what i was trying to point out is i think intrinsic and one of the tensions and contradictions of the enlightenment is precisely that its heritage because of its emphasis on autonomy of the individual because of its emphasis on um, on the way a scientific mission can can be transferred out from the sphere of uh, natural the, of of uh, of learning about nature to acting in society and in the human realm, that uh, inevitably there's this ideology of efficiency, which by the way is sort of intrinsic to the market and the way it in it acts, is gonna is gonna and become diffused through throughout society. Uh, that you know, I think that being said, I think you brought us to the to the to the modern moment in a sense, and we could keep going back to the past. I think it's useful to do those comparisons. It really is. Um, you know, we we have, uh, and maybe I'm not sure if you want to begin, Jason, or, or I can go, or if you, Joshua, you wanna if you wanna lead here. But I think it's a you know, if we talk about the present and we talk about, you know, we're talking about and I, and. What you were talking about, Joshua, I think is another important dimension of it, the Reformation, right? This shift in, if you think about it at the end of the day, you know, the church controlled knowledge during the Middle Ages. It controlled knowledge production. It also controlled the written word. Um, you know, Latin was a language that was the, was the official language, and it, was a, and it was a language. Vernaculars were not used. All over Europe were not used as the languages uh, for official proceedings um, in a way the church everything had to pass through the sort of like siphon of the church you know the reformation is as you well mentioned is a move towards um individualizing that sort of uh relation to the to the religious but has all sorts of other ramifications and i think perhaps the most famous analysis is you know max favors uh, the protestant ethic uh and the spirit of capitalism, where he talks about how Protestantism is intrinsic to the development of capitalism, how the shift towards uh, thinking about um, thinking about my the way I can prove myself in the world through devotion to work and through devotion to a trade um, as a way of showing myself to be in God's grace is links up in looks up links up with a certain personality orientation 
that is fundamental to the development of modern capitalism, which is about deferring, uh, deferring in a sense, earthly pleasure for later, and it's and and links up to a sort of financial no, uh, prudency or know-how. Now, this is this is this is Weber's sort of social uh, sociological analysis. Which we could, which is debated, hotly debated. It's a classic of sociology. It's you know, it's not the end all of in terms of analysis. But, 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 you know, to bring us to the to the present world, you know, we have us, uh, we have very complex societies of people that don't have, um, that don't share ethical beliefs, uh, where of have all kinds of different perspectives on what they consider the good life, and you know, one of the arguments that is made by, let's say, by someone like. Uh, um, Habermas says law is not about regulating the good life it's about regulating moral universal action what we can all do to each other and where our boundaries are and within the, those realms within those margins you're basically allowed to do more or less you know within certain realms of what people decide there's a big debate about this you know this is not this is just one perspective his perspective is the law is not about giving you an ethical foundation. It's about giving you a set of moral guidelines, which are supposed to be, if everybody had the chance to, to say something about it, everybody would agree because they're universal, you know, ide- in an ideal sense. But they're moral, they regulate moral practical action. They don't regulate ethics. They don't regulate, you know, what we consider valuable in a sort of, in a sort of thick sense. Now, there are other philosophers like Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, uh, who would say, no, 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 that's, you can't. You know the Republican tradition would say, uh, not the U.S. Republican, the the Rousseauan Republican tradition would say, no, 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 no. The the political self, the community is supposed to decide on the good life in a sense and sort of legislate on the good life. Uh, we can debate on that a lot, but if we think about our complex societies now that are regulated by these different media, law, uh, money, and then now with all these other things we've been talking about for a long for a while now, right? Algorithms. Um, but still television, radio, and all these other things, data. Um, I think that's, that brings us to the present in a really interesting way, and maybe we can talk about... And Jason, I know you wanted to focus on on talking about maybe this constellation of these elements, power, technology, and so forth, um, in the context of maybe contracting. I, w- I wanted to talk about it in the context of urban governance and the way that big tech... Is and is link is intersecting with urban governance. Yeah, yeah, I can make one comment. Um, you've mentioned multiple times about how things are kind of a natural evolution of what came before, and I think that's a very good point. That it's not like we have these isolated movements and isolated events that kind of sprung up out of nowhere, and then they affected the very next few things, and then that was over, and then we have something new that comes up. That's not really how it is. We have a natural progression. The ideas in the Renaissance um, largely led to the ideas in the Enlightenment period. The ideas in the Enlightenment period largely led to the rise of capitalism, and so did the Reformation ideas. And we see the scientific method being applied in capitalism and now being applied more through technology and data in things like governance and the corporate world. And these things are in evolution, they they evolve. So although we do have these parallels that we're drawing that are very valuable, and you can see how this led to this led to this, just like in modern times, we have similar things where this led to this led to this. At the same time, 
they're, they are a natural evolution of each other. So you have this, um, the idea of cyclical history, in a sense, where things don't necessarily repeat exactly, and you are progressing forward, but you have trends and ideas that kind of cycle through, and you have these patterns that cycle through throughout history. And I think that's true, that we have these evolutions where things are building on the things before and it's naturally going to continue. We're not going to stop technology that will evolve. And these things will have an impact on governance and government and society as a whole and public discourse. And there's nothing that we are going to do that's going to stop that. It's a natural evolution of what's going on and kind of the milieu of where we are living in today's society. And so I, I think that's a very good point to talk about how there is an evolution and these things are evolving. It's not isolated events and isolated parallels. These are kind of natural occurrences that do happen and we see them happen in patterns throughout history and we can look at those patterns to help us better understand today and what's coming and then also pair that with how we recognize the evolution. So we pair the pattern with the trend, the evolutionary trend in these different subjects and areas, and we can get a, a very good view and a better understanding of what's going on and what's to come. So I, I really do like that viewpoint that you've proposed a few times. Yeah. You know, and I would, and I would, I would say, uh, Joshua, that, that one thing I would highlight, I think, is is, and this might be a, a, a for our separate episode for us to discuss a little bit at some point, which is, you know, a, in terms if we're talking about history and our philosophies of history, uh, I really think it's uh, in one sense I would agree. You know, I think the things I'm trying to point out in in in, in saying, you know, it's important to look at that past uh, to understand how some if we can find some abstract terms to sort of understand how these shifts happen from one moment to another that we can help to that can in a sense help us to understand where we are uh, where I would I think I slightly depart from what you're saying is or depart from what you're saying to an extent is is uh, um, the idea that philosophy let, let's say history is, has a set of patterns that we could sort of uh, read and that they're that they are tied to let's say things like evolution that um you know, and this is a, this is a bigger discussion on on history that I think is almost beside the point. So I I don't want to spend too much time on that. I I would just mention that I I agree with you to an extent. I think it's important to go back and look at those changes because those changes are important to see how we got to this point. Where I would disagree is to say that those changes, in a sense, are we can map them onto the present. Um, I think I would want to emphasize more the differences. Uh, I don't. I tend to think that human beings, by dint of their own ways in which they have uh, social history uh, sort of by way of their that their uh, technological beings that their historical beings in a sense are not determined solely by let's say uh, we can't think of them in terms of natural history they are we have in a sense uh, we are not necessarily on the same on the same path dependencies it's, it's say natural evolutionary elements uh but that's a bigger question i mean uh, yeah, i would largely agree with you that yeah we have these um we might have patterns is what i'm saying of behaviors that if you look at the rise and fall of empires for example there are trends of um, what happens as they rise and what happens as they fall and some of the catalysts that happen and we see that over and over again throughout history 
but there are very big differences between the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and the American Empire and the British Empire. And yes, like you say, we can't just um, translate those parallels exactly on modern times. There are differences every time. And I guess that's kind of where I'm envisioning that the evolution comes into play, where we have things that evolve. Technology evolves. um, Ideologies evolve. Philosophy evolves. Even religious beliefs evolve. And so those are the things that are very different. And there are many very big differences in today's world with today's shifts and things that are happening than there were in these historical times. So yeah, it's it's a very difficult thing because in, in one way we can look at the parallels and draw out these trends and some of these factors and influencing factors but at the same time, there are also some really big differences. And so, yeah, yeah, I don't know if there's a way to do this scientifically, but we can at least get some ideas and make attempts at making all this work and help to better understand things. Definitely. No, and you're bringing up some big questions, you know, and I think that's that's some interesting, really, to me, they're really interesting questions. And there has to do with, they have to do with historiography and big questions about, does history have a direction in terms of it? A telos does it have a teleology does it have an end does it have a direction in terms of a trend you know i mean we could look at all kinds of philosophers who had a philosophy of history and in a sense who um and, and we could argue about where they were wrong or right and, and there are a lot of historians nowadays who do who believe that uh that there's you know they're um they take a more let's say uh what you would call perhaps a history or historicist perspective in which they look at each, each particular historical moment as a as a unique configuration of, of elements uh, uh, and so forth so you know you bring up you bring up some really important questions i think particularly if you're interested in like looking at it from a historian's perspective and how we can think about the relationship between the past and the present uh, and i tend to think that's a really interesting set of questions uh you know i'd, I'd invite you and jason for to, to for us to talk about that for sure in a future episode that be i think that's a worth this worthy topic of discussion so why don't we look at history over the past 25 years to take this conversation a little bit away from the abstract into mm-hmm. something that's a little bit more tangible yeah which is something we try to do on panoptic good i think that's a good idea jason why don't why don't you take us there with uh i mean i know you wanted to talk about particularly about government contracting, right? Yeah, well, I, I thought it might be interesting for, you know, take a little bit of time here, take our conversation beyond the narrow focus on big tech, and we might examine the rise of new military contractors as an example of the modern state's relationship to capitalism in post-9-11 America. And moreover, I, I think these histories, the politics, the implications of big tech and military contracting converge in some surprising ways. So we can think about either one as an isolated object or as dependencies within the context of a new, maybe a techno-surveillance state. Um, but that's that's a tad dystopian or conspiratorial. <laughs> then again, we've never shied away from going down paranoid rabbit holes. So, so here's the uh, bluff statement, trying more and more to give the kicker up front to maximize understanding in a Hoppermossian sense, be less st- strategic. So as we think about the rise of a new techno-surveillance state, we, we could observe that, one, governments are increasingly using private military contractors to fight wars, emphasizing like U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, lar- largely without being able to oversee or hold their contractors accountable. And two, tech firms, advertisers, and privately held social media platforms 
um, increasingly using big data to influence and predict consumer, employee, and political behavior, where governments are increasingly dependent on the same private entities to barely keep up technologically. So we can understand these shifts as a weakening of the legitimacy of the state or as an expansion of the powers of surveillance capitalists, which is the term used by uh, Shoshana Zuboff, who's the author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. So um, alternatively, we could view the state and surveillance capitalists as partners in a complementary relationship. Basically, anyone who is willing and able to pay for data, including our governments, incurs predictive and strategic powers at the expense of the perceived autonomy of citizens and consumers. Okay, but let's try to put all this into a further context by taking, again, a historical perspective, starting with the rise of new military contractors. So it's probably not surprising that the concept of a privately hired army is ancient. Oh, in the Prince Machiavelli wrote that mercenaries and auxiliaries are useless and dangerous, and if anyone supports a state by the arms of mercenaries, he will never stand firm or sure, as they are disunited, ambitious, without discipline, faithless, bold amongst friends, cowardly amongst enemies, they have no fear of God and keep no faith with men. So uh, there's a book called Mercenaries, A History of a Norm in International Relations by Oxford researcher Sarah, Sarah Percy. And she argues for the existence of a Western norm that restricted the state's use of mercenaries between the 5th and the 19th centuries. And this norm derived from a discourse which characterized mercenaries as without legitimate authority because they were not the state and selfish because rather than waging war for some common good or the preservation of the state, nation, culture, whatever, uh, mercenaries provided a service to financially profit. So um, we, we could take issue with this discourse. Um, you know, state, ethnocultural, religious, ideological groups are selfishly oriented, even without financial profit. And moreover, money and ideology can complement each other. And this is readily av uh, evident in journalist Jeremy Scahill's study of the company Blackwater, uh, one of my favorite topics, as you know, if you listen to uh, Panoptic. And the, the Blackwater corporate overlords seem to have been equally interested in both profit and waging a new crusade in the Middle East. So we might come back to Blackwater later. Those um, two things do go together. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to me that Machiavelli opposed the practice of military outsour uh, outsourcing, whereas today Western governments commonly extend their international uh, military reach with private resources and militias who pr whose primary commitment is to the bottom line. Uh, not the con common good or the state. So that's not to say that corporate leaders are amoral or immoral machines, but like Juan and, and I have discussed in previous episodes, the logic of capitalism is to demonstrate a business case, a strategy to profit and grow before investing or taking action. So this logic can be very limiting, but uh, given a compelling business case, market action is powerful and useful, like, like you mentioned, Joshua. So it's no wonder that in spite of some norm or discourse against the state's use of mercenaries. Throughout history, we can find examples of private actors performing uniquely effective mercenary services and profiting handsomely. So some examples I discovered um, in 401 uh, BC, uh, the Persian prince uh, Cyrus the Younger, he hired a, a Hellenic uh, cadre of Hellenic mercenaries to oust his brother from the Persian throne. In the 14th century Italy, a mercenary group called the White Company auctioned their services to the highest bidder fighting for and against the Pope on different occasions, and they raided local villages and towns um, when uh, maintaining profits um, slowed, when, when, when business slowed. And then we also have the Swiss Guard served as the papal bodyguards during the Renaissance period, even after the state of Switzerland banned mercenary work. Um, okay, but so 
the modern private military contractor, which entails both mercenary and military support services, is uniquely tied to the state, advances in technology, and belief in capitalism. So the uniqueness of these connections may indicate the end of any norm against the state's use of mercenaries. So there's a Brookings researcher named Peter Singer. It's not the same as the Australian philosopher, the ethicist. Um, uh, but in his 2005 article, Outsourcing War, uh, Singer provides a really great summary of the rise of the modern private military contractor. And according to Singer, the new private military industry takes off at the start of the 1990s, so really when the Cold War ends. And given the reduced nuclear threat, many governments reduced their full-time professional armies. Uh, developing countries in the Middle East, Near East, and Africa, like Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, were becoming increasingly unstable. They were characterized by local sectarian and tribal conflicts, for example, warlords pitting child soldiers against each other in messy, asymmetric warfare. In advanced Western militaries looked to off-the-shelf commercial technologies to collect intelligence and manage impacts to trade and the threat of terrorism from afar. And such technologies were largely developed and operated by private firms. So, for example, in the wake of the Monica Lewinsky scandal in 1999, um, a CIA agent, Hank Crumpton, he was tasked to track down Osama bin Laden in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Uh, his team operated the early non-weaponized version of the Predator drone. And the Predator was and still is manufactured by General Atomics, who remains one of the largest suppliers of lethal military drones to the government. So this is really a fascinating uh, story. Using early drone technology, Crumpton's team located bin Laden, and they called on the White House for approval to take him out. And of course, to the dismay of Crumpton and, and really all Americans two years later, um, the White House failed to act. Oh, this is this is all from Crumpton's book, The Art of Intelligence. But here we have one of the earlier public public uh, knowledge examples of the military using commercially procured technology to perform covert actions. And throughout the 90s, there was this domino reaction of foreign local conflicts escalating, and the U.S. was getting involved, uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the resulting Gulf War, uh, the Somali coup leading up to a series of U.S. interventions and bloodbaths in Mogadishu. So advanced Western militaries required ready-to-deploy soldiers, but across the board, they were understaffed. Remember that the American draft ended in 1973. Um, during World, uh, World War II, roughly 12% of the U.S. population served in the armed forces, and today it's less than 1%. So even pre-9-11, we see the government augmenting the military workforce with private security firms, firms like DynCorp, KBR, and Blackwater, although they really took off in 2003. So according to Singer, the expansion of U.S. military contractors in the 90s must be understood within the context of a larger ideological shift, where law, uh, lawmakers voted to privatize government functions across the board, things like education, policing, and prisons. Yeah. So now we're getting to September 11th. Um, I can pause there if, if either of you have any interjections. I have one quick comment, Jason. I think it's, I think it really links up to what yep. we were talking about in a really fascinating way. If we, you know, if we were talking about precisely Hobbes sort of like theory of government of politics, right? The idea, and this, this is really interesting the way you're framing it, because the idea was that all of these people in nature who were apt to kill each other, and therefore could only neutralize their basically violent life and their power through delegating that power to one, the sovereign, to the state, 
a sort of the legitimate holder of violence, right? You know, if you think about it, only the state is allowed to take a life away. Only the state's allowed to, to, right. to kill somebody uh, in the name of the public interest by putting them on the chair, right? Only the state is supposed to lock somebody up, not a private citizen. But this is, this is you know, in, 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 inscribed into an institutional framework is this, is this tension between public interest and private gain that, in a way, it, when, the way you frame it, going back to Machiavelli, it was already really felt, I think, by a lot of political theorists, how privatizing the means of, of violence, right? The means of, of in this case, uh, ex in, in this case, you could say it's the means of, uh, of expressing power abroad. And also, to an extent, you know, if we talk about uh, the militarization of police at home, right, and surveillance and the big, uh, the big huge uh, influx of contracts for things like surveillance in our cities and so forth, linked to policing, how the, the power of the state is, in a sense, uh, the legitimate power of the state, which is supposed to be reactive to the public interest and to, that, to public opinion, is to an extent captured by these industries which have a private interest, right? The interest is of whoever's making surveillance equipment is not illegal, is not the justice of, of, of the legal system, but making sure that they create stuff that the police will buy um, and implement in urban areas in the United States. Or, or right. you know, if we're talking about for, you know, mercenaries in the U.S. Army, if you want to call them that, right? It's, it's buying their technology is to implement in warfare. Uh, which also, I mean, brings up the question of to what extent does that short circuit the capacity for us as a polity to create an actual uh, sensible foreign policy? When, you know, we were talking about this a few days ago, Jason, uh, I was giving you the, the case of, let's say, Latin America and the, and, the, and the war against drugs, right? When the war against drugs becomes militarized and becomes treated as a, as a, as a production and not a consumption, as a uh, problem as a, you know, supposedly by stopping production in places like Bolivia and Colombia and Mexico and so forth, you stop you stem the problem rather than a demand problem of people, you know, of a huge market here, which makes it a hugely valued project product that if you can get it into the border, you know, it's a five thousand percent you know profit margin, and therefore there's going to be actors in those countries that are going to do everything they can to make sure they get it in here, and it's going to completely, you know, in, in the context of weak nation states. It's going to, in a sense, the money, the capital, the violence that's going to flow through, it's going to, it's going to disrupt those societies in ways that we can hardly, I think, really imagine. Uh, we can ask the question, when, when we are, in a sense, tracked into a system of fighting the drug war through, uh, through militaristic means, rather than, let's say, other means, we, uh, and there are interest industries or companies with lots to gain, in terms of the products that they sell to the government, whether it's things for helicopters or things for spraying fields, uh, where you know where poor farmers in, in Bolivia and, and other, other countries are going are growing these things because they need to survive, um, you know we have. I mean, this really brings up a, a, a question of how, to what extent, is our foreign policy sensible and not being short circuited in terms of public opinion by private interests. I think your framing is really interesting in that sense. The way bringing in mercenaries and, bring, and privatizing these elements goes against, or in, in a sense, is very much in tension with our, what's supposed to be a tradition of, of having a legitimate actor that, that, that uh, 
that uh, is the only one that's supposed to act uh, in the legitimate uh, application of violence, right? Well, so particularly after 9-11, there is a perception that there is a need that the government needs the private sector to effectively fight its wars. And that may be partially true because of some organizational systemic issues we can we can talk about but it's also uh, kind of a failure from a certain perspective of the government to you know find itself in that position in the first place and then how it kind of escalates and takes us to where we are today i'd be curious to hear more of what you're tracking on that is jason because i'm not i mean i wonder how far back it goes i mean everybody knows and remembers eisenhower's favorite famous sort of warning you know think about it who, who was giving this warning, a general, former general, now president, was giving a warning saying, hey, watch out, there's this thing called, there's this, there's this nexus forming a military industrial complex. And by the way, this was a war, you know, this was a Cold War warrior saying this. This wasn't like some lefty, you know, radical. This was, this was a guy who had been, you know, running U.S. foreign policy in a very militaristic and active manner uh, overseas saying, hey, watch out. U.S. populists, there's this thing, this nexus forming the military-industrial complex, and it's gonna, it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna determine the the, the direction of our foreign policy. And I, I'm curious as to what extent. And of course, at that point, it wasn't really privatized. But I wonder to what extent there's uh, the history of where we get to this privatization goes back then. And maybe it's just an open-ended question for you, Jason. I don't know if you know the answer to that. Sure. I- I don't have a good answer, but I think there's a lot we can learn just by looking um, at what happens after 9-11 yeah. and seeing how the the structure of, of the Defense Department and other other departments who are involved in military action uh, begins to shift. Um, so if we get into 9-11, of course, you know, of course, there's a, na- a, a massive need for military resources in Afghanistan. And uh, later, Ambassador Paul Bremer's policy of debathification stripped Iraq of all institutions and educated uh, demographics. The policy was really to rebuild Iraq and secure Afghanistan by outsourcing 50% of the military workforce to contractors on a lowest price, technically acceptable basis. That means they're competing on price, not on quality. So in 2000, total defense contract obligations sat just under $200 billion, but um, by 2008, defense spending on contractors doubled, peaking at $450 billion. That doesn't include diplomatic and other government spending on private military services. Uh, In in fact, the flagship mercenary firm Blackwater was contracted almost exclusively by the State Department in Iraq and Afghanistan under the $10 billion Worldwide Protective Services contract. This is the most lethal mercenary firm in the world working under the banner of the State Department's ostensibly diplomatic mission overseas, just to point out the irony there. to be clear, you know, yes, military contracting was and remains a multi-billion dollar industry, but in Iraq and Afghanistan, the government's policy was to keep costs as low as possible. You know, they said, we're going to make uh, companies compete on a lowest price basis to execute sensitive military operations overseas, and you get what you pay for. So in 2007, a cadre of Blackwater mercenaries massacred innocent people in downtown Baghdad, and that was just the tip of the iceberg, but it took an international reputational crisis for State Department to fire Blackwater. 
Part of the issue is that the government's procurement strategy was reactionary, uncoordinated, and lacked internal controls. And this is really key. The military didn't have the resources, the staff, the technology to properly oversee and understand what U.S. contractors were doing in remote, hostile environments. The 2011 Wartime Commission identified many of these problems, and there have been some reforms, but these fundamental issues, lowest price and limited accountability, still persist today. Uh, And more fundamentally, we might ask if we should be outsourcing military functions at all. Of course, the U.S. military is far from perfect, so we, we could certainly argue that contractors have done really good work, in some cases superior work, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but um, I digress. So I, I want to draw the connection to technology here. But yeah. Did you have something to say? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I, wanna, I had something to say, but I'm curious if Josh, you know, what are you thinking uh, or what questions that have popped up with you? Joshua. Well, I do have many thoughts about war and military and the military-industrial complex. Um, I guess mainly going back to what I've mentioned before about um, something being ideal versus being realistic or historical. And if you look at most modern wars and how we got into them and how we fought them, it doesn't really seem as though we did it in such a way to win a war quickly and efficiently. And some would argue that was deliberate. Some would argue that that was just government inefficiency and ineptitude. But regardless of what the reason is, um, if you look at Vietnam, for example, you briefly mentioned that the reason why we sent ground troops to Vietnam was because of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And what that was, was one of our ships supposedly had been attacked. Well, it came out a while later, I think it was a decade later or more, that that actually never happened, that that was a made-up event, and that the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was something that had been written before that event supposedly took place, and this was declassified, it's official government information now, and so we know that the reason we got into Vietnam was a lie. Now, we still may have gotten into it anyway, and there were probably other circumstances going on, but... The point is that there was some conflicting information there as far as what was being presented versus what was really happening. And then if you look at the rules of engagement for Vietnam, uh, for example, our planes were not allowed to shoot at enemy planes unless shot upon first. And if we saw air defenses being built on the ground in Vietnam or enemy aircraft on the ground, we weren't allowed to shoot at them. We had to wait till the defenses were completely built And then we had to wait for them to fire on us, and then we could destroy them. And same with the planes. We had to wait for them to take off, then had to wait for them to fire at us before we could shoot at them. And I think something like 90% of the airstrikes requested during Vietnam were denied. And so if you look at kind of why we got into that war and how it was fought, it, it... does seem reminiscent of the wars in the Middle East, where you have things like maybe weapons of mass destruction that turns out didn't really exist. And I guess that's technically arguable. But you have many reasons of why we go to war, such as bin Laden is a good example. You mentioned him. Well, the Taliban was willing to give up bin Laden to a third party state. They weren't going to give him up to us because they thought he wouldn't receive a fair trial. uh, Understandably so. But they were willing to give him up to a third state. And we said no. And instead, we invaded the country. And like you mentioned, we had opportunities to take him out 
individually without any sort of large scale conflict. And that was not the route we chose to take. Um, you mentioned that we have a low cost decision making process. Um, the question would be, is that to save money, which is what they say it is for, or is that to prolong conflict? And regardless of the answer to that question, the result is that more money has been spent because the conflict never ends. It's a never-ending war. If you look at the realities on the ground in somewhere like Afghanistan, the Taliban had actually lowered the production of heroin to below 10% of what it was prior to our invasion. Now that we went into Afghanistan, within a few years, production had risen not only back to its prior levels, but much higher than the previous levels. And our soldiers were defending the poppy fields because the argument would be that the citizens there, they relied on that. That was their main source of income. That was their economic system that they lived with. They farmed and they exported. And so we wanted to protect their well-being. And so that's why we protected the drugs. And so on one hand, yes, that makes sense. On the other hand, that seems a little fishy. And so uh, we see the the broken window fallacy being implemented a lot. I hear guys say this, that, well, war's good for the economy. And the whole point of the broken window fallacy is that, yes, if someone throws a rock through my window deliberately, then I do have to go find somebody to repair my window. And I spend money on that. And um, there's money spent on materials and there's money spent on labor. So on a surface level, that seems like that's good for my local economy. Well, the reality is that I had this money. Let's say it was $100 that cost to fix my window. Well, I had that $100. So if this guy wouldn't have intentionally broken my window, I would have used that $100 in the way that I saw best would be the best use of my resources. And I probably would have spent it on something. It wouldn't have been a window that already exists that is not broken. That's kind of dumb. And so to break a window just to spur a small amount of economic spending it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny if you look at the fact that that money was already there and would have been spent anyway. And so basically, you just wasted the money instead of spending it efficiently and productively. And so if you look from a military standpoint, we see that a lot that a lot of people view war as something that spurs the economy. And we have all this spending on these military contractors and on these um, weapons that we buy and the drones and the planes and the bombs and all these things. That's a lot of money. Um, Trump has continued to raise the military budget. And that happens again and again and again. And that is a lot of money. And that does filter down into the economy eventually. But uh, just overall, you have this ideal of, hey, this is a good thing. Hey, we really need to go here. But the reality is a little different. And the information we receive is filtered through different sources that might filter out some of the true information and uh, not filter out some of the things that are desired to be believed. And through that, we end up with my argument, it might be a little controversial, would be to say that we have human sacrifice, that that is something that has existed throughout history, throughout the ages. It used to be religious. Nowadays, it is not. But when something bad happens, society as a whole needs to feel 
that they have received vengeance. They need revenge. They, they need a cathartic event to make them feel better. And 9-11 is the perfect example. After 9-11 happened, Americans were outraged. They demanded vengeance. They demanded that someone pay for this. And so, in a way, a lot of the war that happened directly after and that really hasn't ended since made people feel better. It was cathartic for society as a whole. It's, oh, they got what they deserved. I've heard the comment many times, we'll just bomb them all. And I guess people don't think that they're talking about innocent women and children when they say all of them. And they really do mean that, though. So it's kind of interesting. But um, the point is that there are a lot of different incentives that are at play here, but all of the incentives align with going to war and staying at war. So if you look at the government, the government gets more power when they're in a state of war. World War I was very much this way, and uh, post 9-11 with Patriot Act, very much this way as well. And if you look at corporations, they're incentivized to go to war for profit. They make a lot of money. They sell a lot of goods and services to the government, so it's good for them. And then citizens really want to go to war for American pride. I had a coworker today actually say something about how, you know, he doesn't want any other country to be superior to America and we need to go over there and we need to fight them and we need to take them out. And that's his attitude and that's the attitude of a lot of Americans. And so, yeah, if you look at the incentive models and look at some of the corruption involved, then we see that it, it seems inevitable that we're going to go to war and we're going to stay at war because everybody's incentivized to do so. And so that that would be my um, kind of uh, side point here in the more contrarian perspective. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to agree with you in general that war has become a racket, <laughs> and it yes, and and, and 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 then we could almost, I mean, we could almost say that since World War II, there hasn't been a popular war that society mobilized with, uh, to it. At a large scale and had mass approval, and where really there was a, a sort of it was a mass uh, effort by, by American society. I mean, we could we we just have to look at any videotape from Vietnam to see that it was the Vietnam was a very controversial affair. Um, we're not we're by no means were people sort of willing to women to go into factories and men to line up to go to war, um, but people were burning, you know cards and, and uh, their military cards and, 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 all, and there were all kinds of, there was all kinds of civil discord about these things. So, I mean, and we could, I think we could go into a, a very a broad and, and deep discussion on what exactly happens after World War II that, that directs foreign policy in a certain way. You know, I think where, where I'd like to pick off, pick up uh, from for a second, um, or maybe redirect a little bit back to you, Jason, is, is uh, you know, I think it is, and I think part of what you're saying too, Josh, is how there seems like, if we look at it from this context of political theory, where violence is supposed to be legitimately wielded in a, in a legal sense, right? And where there's supposed to be a justification for that violence, whether it's domestic or foreign. And, and in a way... Um, ideally, if you think about it, ideally that you know, violence overseas would only be, in a sense, uh, mobilized by the state you know, in the, with some legitimate interests at stake. 
right? And we could probably look at wars and we could disagree and agree about whether a legitimate interest was at stake. I mean, we could probably say the War of 1812. I mean, obviously a very legitimate interest when a young republic is being attacked by its former colonizer and saying, hey, you know, fighting for its independence uh, and so forth. We could talk about the legitimacy of it. I think things become really complex after World War II when we start talking about when, as Jason points out, when suddenly the state is to an extent, and, and especially after 9-11, I think, Jason, you're trying to emphasize this, this change. And I think you're right. There is a, there's obviously a very huge change at this point. How much uh, war becomes an industry with lobbying interests, with uh, all kinds of connections to the regulatory administrative state, to the executives, to politicians. Uh, we could talk about things like mo- the influence of money in our politics. But the fact is, there seems to be a short circuit of the supposed separation of powers, the supposed flow of communicative action from the public sphere, public which is formed into public opinion, which is supposed to influence the legislative process into a legitimate law uh, uh, producing system, which is then supposed to be applied by the executive. And another thing that I think, Jason, you 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 obviously always would bring up is this the way in which the executive has become not only a an up a branch that applies law, but that also produces law by edict, right? We could talk about how, yeah. you know, Obama Obama gets elected and he rolls out certain things in terms of um, um, climate uh, protections and so forth. Or you could talk about trade policy and sanctions policy with Cuba. If you want to talk about foreign policy, you could talk about all kinds of things. And then you have, uh, you know, then you have a new president and all these things get rolled back, right? There's There's a way in which the executive has a huge leeway in terms of what they can do um, with that. Did you have um, did you have other elements of this, Jason? Um, yeah, I wanted to start drawing the connection to technology. Uh, your point about the executive branch trespassing in legislative affairs, and also vice versa, kind of the legislative branch deferring that authority to the executive branch may actually tie into how we think about why has the government not been very good at overseeing our contractors overseas. And then also this kind of lack of understanding and knowledge about technology and the ability to properly regulate big data. So I think we're going to see some interesting connections there. It's worth noting that every president, at least for the past uh, two or three decades, has, you know, regardless of party affiliation, has done more and more through executive action. You know, one perspective is that the powers of the legislative branch have become more and more um, constricted. And and partly, I mean, this could be through uh, the legislative branch itself deciding to defer this authority away because the, the kinds of policies that are required are too complex for the legislative body to uh, understand and manage themselves. <clears throat> and maybe we'll get back to that later. But yeah, let, let's draw this link to technology now. So I mean, the government's unprecedented use of, of private military contractors is one example of new capitalist uh, institutions appropriating authority away from the state, authority from the state, uh, and or the state, like I said, deferring authority to the markets. But uh, and that's kind of an interesting parallel as well. But but maybe big tech is the big picture here. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? 
is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.